Welcome back to the Cold Star Project, the podcast for emerging entrepreneurs to help them find out what they're going to get kicked in the head by next and the unexpected challenges of scaling fast. The stuff that you were doing to get you to this point is not the stuff that is going to work to get you to the next plateau. You can't just do more of the same. Today's episode is sponsored by, woo, we have a sponsor. Yeah, I can buy that can of pork and beans that I've always wanted. They told me to say that. It is sponsored by The Closing Engine. The Closing Engine, if you don't know, is a third-party sales-as-a-service business. They have super awesome, consultative-type, non-pushy, but very effective. I mean, I've seen 50% close rates out of these folks. It's astounding. Salespeople, very nice people, and they hook up to you and your proven online marketing funnel for products and services at about $6,000 and up level. So if you're in that situation, go to theclosingengine.com. You can get like a free report there and book a time to talk to somebody. Make sure that you're a fit. All good stuff. And they've been around a couple of years now. I know them. <laughs> if you're in that situation where you're a business owner and you're tearing your hair out looking for more time, that's probably a fit for you. Okay, you've got to recover some of your time. Or you're going to completely lose your sanity. If you're if you're the founder and you're the only sales, i.e., revenue generating machine in your business, you're in trouble. You've got to expand out, and by increasing that capacity, it's going to free you up to be a CEO. I mean, the guy or gal who goes out there and makes the deals, and I don't mean the one-on-one -on -one sales deals. I'm talking about the CEO type thinking that I teach people how to do. Like, hey, instead of wasting your time as the CEO trying to plink off one at a time sales, how about you go make a partnership with somebody in your industry who has a list of proven buyers at your price point in your niche who is that these people are interested in buying something like what you sell and you could get 10,000 of them access to these folks through the trusted partnership with their trusted ally that they already know that's called leveraging the relationship by the way and also possibly channel marketing <laughs> the question is are you gonna continue to go crazy trying to do the same thing over and over again? Are you gonna try expanding your throughput, your capacity, freeing yourself up, being able to have more time with your family because sales is taken care of by somebody else, proven, competent, all, I mean, listen, I have seen the closing engine go through the iterations. I have seen them do what I say to do. I was a co-founder <laughs> before I went off to my own thing here with Cold Star Technologies. I know all about it. And what does that mean to you? That means you don't have to pay for them to learn. They've already seen it all. They know about onboarding. They know about all the stumbling blocks. They have seen it. And they can help you get into that position very, very quickly. Now you might say, why don't you just hire a sales guy? Well, A, it's an employee and an additional major expense. B, a salesperson is not a freaking cactus. I, I keep on having to say this online. People don't get it. They, they've never hired a salesperson before. If they have, they hired one that didn't work out, and then they obliviously went on and continued the, the, the insanity definition, right? Same thing over and over again, expecting different results. 
You cannot just hire a salesperson and stick him in a corner and feed him leads and say, there you go, buddy. There you go. The mindset of a salesperson, look at your mindset. I mean, you, if you're a founder, you've got founder fuel, and I respect that, and that counts for a lot. That will help you actually continue and make sales because you're crazy. You are. So am I. Or else we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. We'd be doing something safer with a guaranteed rate of return, right? <laughs> so, listen. When you get a salesperson, you got to watch their mindset. Otherwise, they go off track and they stop closing and they don't do their job well. And if that goes on for two weeks before you notice it because your feedback loop isn't that great, and trust me, it will. That's two weeks of expensive leads that you're paying for and throwing them at this salesperson and that are wasted. And you do not want to get into that situation. I have seen many coaching firms in particular who try this and the two weeks murders their business. It just flat out kills it because they can't afford to waste the money on those leads. I mean, the cost to getting a, a completed application filled out in an online funnel is like, the average is like $260, okay? I mean, it's a range. You can get them, I've seen them as cheap as around $150, and I've seen them all the way up at $400 on the average to get an application filled out. And, and if your closing ratio and the industry average is under 20% people, it's like 18%. Oh, I didn't know that yet. Jason is, he's got his finger on the pulse of that, okay? <laughs> that means you gotta get one in five, one in six, that's gonna close, right? So multiply that figure by five or six, okay? If it's $200, you're at the $1,000 level cost of customer acquisition, plus the salesperson's commission, okay? and any fees, charges, overhead, all that stuff. And they're still screwed up. I'm going off on an aside here because I really, really, really am passionate about sharing this, this idea that, like dismantling this idea that, oh, I'll just hire a salesperson. That is utter nonsense. And that's why you need a partner like the closing engine. You need it because they've got the coaches. They've got the people watching every day, every moment, they're salespeople. And so when things do start to go wrong with the salesperson's mindset, and they all do, and they do with yours too as the founder, it is so easy to get messed up, snarled up. They're on it. The feedback loop is there. That's what they do. And so they're watching and making sure that your salesperson is on point all the time. And there isn't a two-week feedback loop that's busted and a recovery period after that to get them back online. It's fast. That day. That's the amazing superpower that you get. And, and you can just walk away as the, as the owner. I don't have to worry about sales anymore. It is completely taken care of by the closing engine. So go check that out. Theclosingengine.com Get over there. Book a call. Talk to their people. If you're at that, I'd say if you're at like a $4,000 price point or higher right now, you're going to have to raise your price if you're at that 4K figure, but it'll be well worth it to everyone involved, trust me. And you'll have the mindset to make the shift. If you're under that figure, don't bother because you won't be able to make the shift. Your money tolerance will be too low. We haven't talked about money tolerance on this show because this is primarily a tech-focused endeavor, but... Maybe we should. I don't know. We'll get back to that in a future episode, I guess. 
Today I wanted to talk about a situation that I was in with a big company years ago. Like it's like 13 years ago now. It was in the, the 2002 to 2005 era. And to set a bit of a background up here, the culture of this business was really messed up. Now I have uh, done a lot online and I have learned that most people don't have an experience similar to this. So when I talk about it uh, on Facebook, those folks have no idea what I'm talking about for the most part because they don't have a similar experience and I find that very frustrating. So this is a window into a bigger world if this is new to you. It could be very, very enlightening for you about how big businesses work. I want you to think about it like uh, if you're into science, gravity wells. There's all these different gravity wells inside organizations and they're different departments or power bases or influencer groups. We could call them stakeholder groups. And they buff it around and they bump into each other and that causes damage a lot of the time. Because these guys are not on the same page and that's what happened in this example that I'm going to share with you. Now, we got to talk about background first, about ethics. You might think that ethics are like a no-brainer. No, they're, they are busted all over the world. They are screwed up and in big organizations where the top, the management, the executive level say, this is okay. I mean, we've seen this a lot lately in the financial banking, lending sectors, but it's not exclusive to there. And this is, this is how many years ago? Like 15 years ago, right at the start. This company based out of Chicago, I don't want to name names because I don't want to get sued, but you could probably figure this out and look it up. This company out of Chicago owned the electrical wholesaler business, which had many branches, like 25 branches, let's say, across Canada. I was based out of Vancouver at the time. And an electrical wholesaler is like, it's like a retail kind of thing where you walk in and there's a counter and you can buy stuff to panels and, and plugs and stuff that you could put into walls for, say, say a contractor's putting up a school or a housing uh, a project or uh, they would get parking lot lights. Those were, those were some of the bigger projects where you'd come in and sit down with a salesperson and they'd, they'd do a quote for a few hundred thousand bucks for that, for example. And they'd get it from like Phillips or something. So this company had been owned by this organization out of Chicago and the leadership of that Chicago-based organization thought it was okay to do something called pre-billing. Now, you may be aware of the matching principle in accounting. That means that you're essentially, I mean, some accountant's going to come on and probably uh, razor sharp correct me here, but you want to match up income and, and expenses, okay? And what this company was doing was they said, uh, we want to make ourselves, as a public company, we want to make ourselves look good to our shareholders, so let's mark orders, sales, as sales, before they're actually sold. So like, let's say it's October, they would bill November sales now to boost their revenue figures. No product had actually left the stores, nobody got anything yet, and the company hadn't received the cash. Not even on the books as far as the buyers were concerned uh, as, as a debt owing, if it's, there's credit involved here. So you got net 30 days, net 45, net 60, right? And in a few crazy cases, which I would have never allowed, but were grandfathered in net 90. Never do that, people. <laughs> That's ridiculous. So pre-billing. 
So the court system gets wind of this, these executives get taken to court, and the company is really knocked out. Like, hey man, you guys can't do this. The executives are going to jail. And they sold off the electrical wholesaling business to a French company who, to their credit, I mean, I, I was really impressed by this, uh, stayed at, uh, you know, arm's length and, and kind of said, you know, you guys, like, we want ethical standards, but you guys do it. We're going to hire good people. We're going to leave you alone. Just, just run it. And uh, we want these numbers. You know, let's, the, here's our performance standards and, uh, and you guys go do it. I like the trust that they showed in the leadership that they had brought in. I step into this situation, I get hired as a, as a credit manager for this wholesaler and I'm responsible for seven branches. So I'm brought in to be a policeman, <laughs> essentially. Now, let's understand the nature of credit here. And this is the essential problem that caused the friction between these gravity wells, okay? So first of all, Everyone is freaked out about what just happened with their past owner business, right? Imploding and then people going to jail and that. Like prison is, is a big deterrent, you know, when you actually see it. And yet they still are looking at their P&L and wanting profit, right? They want to drive revenue, but they now want to do it legally. And one of the things that had happened before that I heard about before I got there was that locally anyway, we had a bunch of credit managers working out of this office who took care of across Canada geographic areas. So the local ones, the ones that took care of the lower mainland, you could, as a contractor, drive in there before I got there and apparently buy the credit manager lunch. And for this, you would get a get-out-of-jail-free card for a week. Like, oh, we won't call on you for a bit. You know, we'll let, it, we'll let your account slide. <laughs> now, you might hoot and holler and say, oh, my gosh, how could they do that? This is going on all the time. I mean, you guys listen to me and my guests on the interview shows talk about rampant criminal activity and, and money-sucking, profit-killing activities going on, scams and not even necessarily criminal behavior, but, uh, but something destroying the efficiency of the business, right? And the business is there to be a money-making machine. If it's not, what the hell are you doing it for? Then it's an ego trip. Anyway, I think some of you don't take this seriously enough. That there are ostensibly good people doing bad things in your organization. It's going on under your nose right now. I guarantee it. Someone is robbing you blind and you don't even know it. And if you brought us in, we could find out who that is. But the fact is, some of you don't want to look. You don't want to find out. I want the truth. In fact, the biggest, highest, greatest value at Cold Star Technologies is the truth. The truth is not honesty. The truth is not necessarily friendly. It's the truth. I want reality because once we accept reality, yeah, that horrible thing really is going on over there, and I'm looking straight at it. Darn it. That sucks. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not always fun. But then it gets into the position where we can change it, and that can be fun. That can be a lot of fun. So here we are at this electrical wholesaler where the senior leadership of the previous owner had decided that it was okay to do something totally unethical, 
that spilled down to the ground level where the people talking to the customers felt that this stuff, uh, you could get away with whatever you wanted. And now the leadership had changed, the management had changed, and we were being brought in, group of us, to act with principles, have standards and enforce them and say, no, the way that things went on in the past is not the way that they're going to go on in the, in the, in the future. Now, do you think maybe there would be some friction? <laughs> now, I mentioned let the people don't understand credit at the start. Let, let me dig into this for a moment so that we understand the starting point here. What is credit? Like, credit is... I will let you take something out of our business. And so as the buyer, quote unquote buyer, what do you have if you're the buyer? You have the thing. You got the thing. You got the light bulb. You got the idea. You got the work, right? The sales letter, if I'm selling that on credit for some insane reason. You got that thing. What did I get as the seller? What did the seller get? Empty air. A promise. Some of your guys' promises aren't very good. They aren't very valuable. I promise to pay you in X number of days. So I got nothing as the seller. I just got a promise. Some promises are pretty good. But this leads us into a situation where it's gamesmanship now. And you really have to recognize this as, as the seller, okay? That buyer is now in an adversarial relationship to you because of the nature of credit. They are going to try and extend that out as long as possible. If it's 60 days, they don't want to pay you on day 57. And in fact, they will get pretty pissed off if you call their accounts department on day 57. I know, because I was told to do it. That part's not fun. So we had... All these loosey-goosey adversarial relationships between the credit department and the end customers, these electrical contractors and their accounts payable departments. Now, the accounts payable departments, I mean, these are companies that, that had medium to high five-figure balances with us every month. I, uh, oh, I should say this. I, I collected over $2 million a month in receivables for this company a month for four years and I was good at it I got very good at talking to people about this touchy subject called money and getting them to put my check on top and that's what a good credit manager does develops relationships so that that friction that I talked about is minimized that adversarial relationship is minimized that that accounts payable supervisor says I like him or her and I'm going to put their check out and I want you to think about this because it's not really my money from the accounts payable person's perspective. It's not really my money. It's the business's money. If you business owners heard them say that in real life, you would freak out. You would lose your you-know-what. But that's the way they're thinking. It's not really my money. Now I'm going to get some hate messages from accounts payable people who stumble onto this. Say, I take my job very seriously. Well, okay, I worked with y'all for four years, and that's what I saw. I didn't say you didn't have a fiduciary responsibility, because you were doing your job. You were paying the company bills on time. Thank you very much. I earned a lot of bonuses for that. But you're really not thinking it's your money. Those relationships had to be cleaned up. But there's more going on here than that. There's 
the branches and the branch staff, the branch managers there. They've never met me. Do you think some guy in, in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, has ever met Jason Canigan in Vancouver? <laughs> no, just on the phone. I had to do all this from thousands of miles away by phone. Develop the relationships, communicate the standards, and enforce the standards. And you're going to hear ways where they tried to slink around it, and they did for a while. So what happens at the branch level? Customer comes in. They physically see this person, this, this customer, right? That person walks into the branch, they see him, they have a relationship with this person, they've never seen me. And at the beginning of that four-year period, I just showed up. Jason, the cop, is on the case. Oh, boy, boy, is he a mean bastard, right? He won't let us do what we want to do. Oh, we're used to being able to behave in a certain manner, and he's telling us we can't. Again, they're not doing anything evil, but they know this person, this customer, and they don't want to let that person down, and they don't want to lose face in front of them. And now, Canigan, back in the credit department, has made their computer unable to enter in an order for this customer because they've gone over their limit and Jason doesn't think that they can pay. So they're tap, tap, tap on the keyboard at the branch counter and it's doing nothing. That SOB Canigan. <laughs> Where do you think this goes? That goes up to the branch manager. Now the branch manager has his P&L and he's interested in driving revenue and darn it, Canigan is not letting us drive revenue. See, here is the first big misconception that I had to work on educating these folks about. Remember I said credit, the nature of credit, right? They get the product, you have a promise, empty air, okay? A, a sale, entering a sale into the system for this customer is not revenue. It's not, it's a promise for revenue. That was the first major thing I had to identify and overcome with these branch managers and their staff, education. What is this really? In the early days, that branch manager would be pissed off and call up to the general manager's office of the division. And that general manager, at first, would call the credit manager and give him an earful. What the hell do you think you're doing? You're damaging the relationships with our customers and you're stopping us from making money. Don't you know what the hell you're doing? That's from inside the organization. Do you realize how dysfunctional that is and how common that is? Look at the different dynamics going on here, right? The general manager, Gravity Well, wants to drive revenue to show good figures on the P&L to please the French owners, right? And the, the way they do that is, and they're looking at spreadsheets here. They do not have necessarily, the good GMs did, but relationships, personal relationships with the big customers in their area. Okay? But they're mostly looking at spreadsheets here and numbers. That's a level of abstraction. This is why for years I would talk to business development vice presidents of companies and say, what do you know about the frontline, foot-on-the-ground problems your salespeople are having? And they would say, I don't know. I have a sales manager for that. Once again, do you realize how insane that sounds? They're out at this level of abstraction. It's just numbers on a page, and i got to force that number up. Let's, look, I, knowing the score is great, but you really got to know what's going on, too. After a few instances of the getting blasted by the general manager on behalf of the branch manager and staff thing going on, our boss's boss, the director of credit, good guy, nearing the end of his career at the time, 
uh, would step in and say, look, uh, don't call them. <laughs> call me. And he took the body blows for us in the, the second stage of that period of adaption. And I really appreciate that. He's a good guy. You get these things going on here, right, where there's all this friction within the organization. And it's not fun to go to work in that kind of an environment, let me tell you. you got to struggle your way through it. And that, that this kind of thing is going on, might be going on in your business right now. So you got credit department, that's one gravity-based power well. You got the branch staff and managers, that's another one. They got their own agenda. You've got the general manager's office, third group, also got their own agenda, generally aligned with the branch staff, because that's the tool <laughs> for how they force their numbers up. And you've got the end customers, who if they don't pay at the end of that credit period, we're doomed. I mean, you know, I made good bonuses from collecting uh, to my targets every, every month, but some months, it was like, no, there's $100,000 owing here in this category from these two businesses, and we ain't going to make it. I am doomed on the 30th or 31st of the month. Those are the big rush days in the credit world, by the way. Collecting money at the end of the month to get to your target, and then the few days afterwards. In the middle of the month, not much is going on. You're kind of managing things, working on relationships, whatnot, and, uh, and it's a little more boring, if you will, right? And you might do side projects, that kind of thing, analysis, opening up new accounts, granting credit, that kind of thing. But the end of the month, man, that is just a, you're staying late, and you want to, <laughs> To get that, I mean, people would send us information over the fax back then, and then we'd stand at the POS uh, machine and, and enter in that credit card payment. And then there are standards for how you, what you do with the data, how you store the data, destroy the data, that kind of thing, credit card numbers I'm talking about here. There's a lot of process stuff going on. And I will tell you, many, many, many companies are extremely clumsy at this stuff. You have no idea. And that's why these data breaches happen. Even with the big companies. It's a lot more clumsy and clunky than you think. What happened? I had to enforce the standards and be the bad guy for a couple years. And finally, things started to turn around. Now, I told you that some of these guys on the branch level would find ways to wiggle around me locking them out of the computer system and not being able to enter an order for XYZ contractor when they came in, okay? Here's what they would do. And I found out about this later because they told me. They confessed <laughs> later on. Yes, there is confession in the business world. Yeah, we couldn't give uh, or enter that order. So we just gave the product to the customer and wrote it down on a piece of paper. And then when you unlocked the account later, we entered it then. How's that for the matching principle, too? Right? This is what's going on in organizations all over. People finding creative ways to circumvent policy. What does this show? Like the lack of trust and the lack of, oh, yeah, you're actually on my side and looking out for my best interest. The first time you have a customer who begs and pleads to get the order and you allow them to get it and then they go belly up and you're $60,000 in the hole and maybe having to take them to court, which is not a place you want to be as a credit manager, going to court. Courts do not like you. You're the bad capitalist in that situation and the contractor is the poor defenseless little lamb.
what the heck was going on here? They were just giving the product away and then writing it down on a sheet of paper to enter it in later. Because I would see that, like, you see a pattern after a while if you have any analytical ability at all, right? When you when you see stuff happening over and over again. I'd open the account up and suddenly $6,000 worth of stuff would go in. I'd be like, what's going on here? Oh, yeah. they'd lie to me at the start, the branch staff would. Oh, yeah, they just came in and made an order. Really? Five minutes after I entered the the command to open the account up that's interesting the day that a branch manager called me and said so-and-so's here and they're at the limit of their account and i'm gonna tell them no is that okay the day that they did that my heart leapt like 17 stories in the air Woo they get it yay <laughs> they get it that was awesome but it took like a year and a half two years to get to that point where they didn't see me as adversarial anymore, where they knew that the standards were going to be applied consistently and they couldn't do an end run around me. Yeah, sometimes the general manager's office would intercede and go to my boss's boss and then the director of credit would have to come in to me and say, Jason, I'm sorry, but we need to open this account up. Okay. <laughs> it's your guys' decision for the relationship or the appearance of driving revenue or some the future considerations, right? You know, you'll, you're going to do, okay. But that was rare. That was rare. That might happen once every six months, you know, at that point. Everybody started to understand what we were doing and that the standards were going to be enforced and they couldn't just willy-nilly do whatever they wanted. And that was good. And when they were making decisions like I would have made them, that is when it got really good. You know, I had this branch manager in Kelowna, nice guy. We had one, I mean, this is an application of Pareto's law, the 80-20 rule right there, man. I mean, a, a huge portion of their revenue came from one contractor. And that frightens me. It frightened me then when I was even a less sophisticated business guy than I am now. But it frightened me then. I don't like that situation, dependent on one big revenue source. Because what happens if they disappear, right? And they were always at their limit, and they had 90-day terms, and which uh, you heard me earlier rage against. I don't like it because that promise of, oh, yeah, we'll pay you, is really hanging out there in the breeze, right, at that, at that point. And I said, Tom, what are you going to do? And we, we had him shut down for a long time, too. I said, you got to find something else, and you know, a, a, different, a different kind of customer. And he would always push back at me. And remember, we're always doing this by phone. Never met in person. He says, uh, well, I don't know, man. I mean, he was scared, right? Like, what do I do if, if they disappear? And I went on vacation. I remember it was uh, the month of April, one of these years. And... I came back and I noticed that the account for this, I was going through my accounts to re-familiarize myself, you know, where am I, what happened, and uh, they're locked out and I called him up and I said, what's going on? And he says, oh, I, I fired them. Like it was his idea. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can have the credit for it, I don't care. So, and that was my turn to be the yelper. I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what are you going to do for revenue? And he said, don't worry. When I opened up the space, for something new, it filled up. I got new business. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> this is cool. So, and again, further proof that mindset is king because he, as long as he'd been locked into the fear thing of, oh my gosh, I can't replace these people. There's nobody out there to, to replace them. What am I going to do if I lose them? To forget this, I'm making room and it opened up. 
that put him in a very powerful position. So I got another story that I want to share about this experience, something I did after uh, at the end of my time there, that uh, I'm going to put in a future episode because this one's going long. Uh, but I've really enjoyed sharing that snapshot of what happened and what this was like and the different pressure groups inside organizations that are working against each other. I mean, nobody ever sat down. This, this boggles my mind now you know, a decade and a half later, nobody ever sat down between these different power groups and said in the organization, okay guys, this is what we're planning on doing. Here's the picture of the outcome that we want to work towards. Do you see what we're doing? Not even asking like, hey, do you want to co-create this with us or do you want to participate or something like that like I'm, I'm just saying nobody ever even expressed the picture of what we were trying to do to other parts of the organization this had to happen slowly organically and and i mean it's like the cuban missile crisis and kennedy communicating with khrushchev through a quarantine of cuba like that that is pretty clunky communication Right? Surely there were better ways to do it. They didn't have the red phone then. In fact, the, uh, the red phone was installed after that crisis to, to the Kremlin so that we could talk, you know. <laughs> they have a softer means of communicating. So if you want to find out if your organization is having what kind of issues in your organization, they're there. <laughs> you must know this by now. Are going on and how Cold Star Tech could help you reduce the friction of getting to that end point. It's not just giving them the photo, by the way, and saying, here's the outcome that we want to get to. That's not good enough. It's going to take time. That's a good start at communicating the end goal. But uh, if you want to do that, book a call with us, and we'll dig into it and find out more. Thanks for listening.